the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Okay, so Josh, welcome. Thanks for uh, being here with us today. Um, so Josh, you're actually based in San Francisco, I believe. So uh, you're probably on your your morning coffee as uh, we're approaching the end of the working day here in the UK. <laughs> so uh, thank, thanks for starting your morning with us. Um, so Josh, I've been really excited to do this episode um, for uh, a wee while now as uh, you know, you have undoubtedly a very impressive um, career and track record as a, a technology leader. Um, so you're currently the CTO and co-founder of Airplane.dev. Uh, so Airplane is a a startup uh, company founded in 2021. Um, it is a developer platform for internal calls, uh, internal tools, excuse me. Uh, so a really, really cool platform. Um, I'll obviously let you uh, say a little bit more about what it is that you guys do, but we actually know some of our clients uh, already use your platform. And so that's uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And um, prior to um, uh, joining or founding Airplane, you were uh, the first hire and CTO uh, at Benchling, I believe, and, and obviously helped that business scale, uh, you know, to over 300 people um, and achieve a, a valuation of, um, of, of 6 billion. So I think it's fair to say you know what you're doing um, and uh, clearly a very revered technology leader. So really looking forward to hearing some words of wisdom today from you. Um, but yeah, let's start where we always do i suppose at the beginning and um, so talk us through a little bit about you know where it all began for you in tech and uh yeah just sort of tell us a little bit about your background and and how you got into tech in the first place if you would uh, be so kind sure of course well first of all thanks for having me and i'll say uh probably no one really knows what they're doing but uh we all do our best um but yeah so in terms of my background um I guess I was your typical uh, child nerd. Um, you know, MIT was my dream school. Wanted to go to MIT, did everything I could to. Uh, luckily, got in, and so uh, you know, I was that kid at the front of the class, basically. Uh, went to all my classes. Absolutely, just loved learning. Um, and uh, yeah, things like distributed systems, compilers, offering systems. It was just a lot of fun. Um, so uh, I'll, I started there because my LinkedIn history is pretty brief because. I am graduating a year early from MIT and then joined a bunch of MIT friends uh, over at Benchling. I uh, had no idea what life sciences was really, but uh, it seemed really cool to be at that intersection of software and biology. Um, the founders at Benchling were really smart, but I think uh, more importantly, they were just really hardworking. They were really gritty uh, people, and I thought that was really important for a startup. And I just figured, uh, you know, if not now, when, right, I uh, wouldn't probably want to do a startup when I got older. Uh, so I ended up joining them in the summer of 2013. Um, and uh, so early days, you know, software engineer, just work on everything, uh, front end, back end, just making the t-shirts. Um, and uh, as the company grew, uh, you know, I like to say my role probably changed every six to nine months. Uh, so I went from being IC to manager, to some sort of like architect role, uh, the whole time talking a lot to customers, uh, building a lot of internal tooling as well, actually. Uh, a lot of infrastructure. Um, and so, um, you know, it was really fun because it was just such a dynamic role. Um, I, I did our ISO 27K uh, certification. Um, so it got me exposed to a whole lot of different things. Um, 
I ended up, uh, so that company started, kept growing and still growing um, and uh, a lot of great people there. But at some point I wanted to uh, start from scratch. Uh, felt like, uh, you know, really just missed the idea of like building uh, very hands-on. And so around 2020, I made that decision. Uh, it was really unfortunate timing. Uh, it was right when we announced uh, the COVID quarantine. And so I was like, you know, I'll wait for this quarantine to, thing to end. I'll come back and then uh, say goodbye to everyone in person. So then it ended up happening, uh, sadly, right? Um, took a few months off board. Um, and it took like about half a year to research things. Uh, so that's where I ended up met, meeting up with uh, my now co-founder, Ravi. Uh, he had left his startup heap around the same time. So we got the timing very lucky. And we were uh, entrepreneurs in residence at Benchmark. Um, and really just meant like they gave us a lot of latitude to just look at ideas and research things. Um, so that was uh, really great in our journey figuring out airplane. Uh, we looked through a lot of different areas, actually, before realizing that we both just really liked working with engineers uh, as much as we could. And so uh, we ended up looking at dev tools. And uh, anyways, yeah, started looking at airplane stuff around end of 2020, um, which is when we incorporated and, you know, been working on that ever since. Um, so, yeah, that's basically me in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. I really like that. It's a great story. I think, you know, it's uh, always fantastic to talk through a success story and, and you know, clearly you've, uh, you've put your money where your mouth is and, and not sort of resting on your laurels with, uh, with Benchling, but gone and done it again on your own, like I say, and built and sent from scratch. So, and especially, at, like I say, a very tricky time to, to do it as well. You know, we, we founded True North, a similar kind of time really, and in the end of 2019, so just before the, the pandemic. And I know firsthand, not not an easy time to, to start a business. So, uh, so hats off to you guys for, uh, for what you've achieved so far. Um, so talk us through then, um, Airplane. Okay, what, what would it, explain the core problem that Airplane solves for uh, development teams and and yeah i guess the you know the value that the internal tools can bring yeah so i'll start saying like when we started airplane we didn't really use the word internal tools uh we're really trying to just line that up with what we see uh the industry sort of converging on um but at the end of the day we just saw a lot of wasted effort right you see a lot of people rebuilding the same things uh, i saw this at benchling saw this at heap um, and we started with the idea of like just not letting, uh, taking the problem of running scripts ad hoc, um, which seemed like a very small toyish problem, but we felt like a lot of potential to grow from there. Mm. Uh, and we just wanted to make that better. And so a lot of cases, you see some engineer running some database script from the laptop and maybe their Wi-Fi disconnects. And next thing you know, there's like a whole outage. And so we started there, but you quickly realized that there's a lot of patterns that you end up solving through the platform that end up generalizing. Um, so all this to say, like the idea of internal tools is to let just people build better business software for themselves. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I say like every company can have software that they build and sell software that they buy and then software that they build and use themselves. And so it's that third category that we think is underlooked right now. Um, a lot of times software is transient. It's just for like this temporary, uh, you know, effort that you're doing. Uh, it's bespoke. It's very custom to how your company works. Um, or maybe it's just really small. It's like, you you know, one little like internal form that like gets your t-shirt sizes from employees and um, you want to automate something around it. And so in um, those cases, you don't need to like pay $5 a month to some SaaS company um, to do that. You should just build it yourself. So really that's what we want to do. We just want to enable better software creation um, within some uh, specialty. And so um, 
that's a high level, but like to talk to Ashley about the customers, right? They don't see it that way. They're like, we have problems to solve. We're not just trying to um, build forms here. Uh, and so what they're solving, um, that's been really interesting because, uh, it, you know, going from vertical SaaS at Benchling to very horizontal dev tools, uh, you see a whole different range of companies. So we have customers, uh, your typical SaaS and fintech startups, um, who are doing a lot of support and operations. Then you have like folks who are like a two-person realtor in the Midwest who know how to code and like use airplane to automate their listings. Um, or you have um, you know e-commerce startup in Southeast Asia, or you have healthcare. And so these are all very different scenarios. But at the end of the day, what they're solving with airplane um, is taking common patterns, common uh, functions in their company, and turning that into code. Uh, so in like more like VC speak, right? I would say like this is more API ification of your company turning. What does it mean to suspend a user into something, a button that someone can click rather than saying, hey, I'll follow a ticket and like, you know, Josh and IT will do that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of, I think, the customer lines. Um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you look at the Airpoint platform, the idea is that we provide these abstractions, these building blocks for you to um that saves you time and the idea is to keep asking what else can we solve for you um our customers and just keep doing that and expanding that so that now includes things like ui components notifications authorization um, authentication um where to run your function how the sdks for building that um so a lot of these little building blocks that you need yeah wicked i, I love that and it- when I, when I kind of came across the concept for Airplane, I just love how you, know, you, you really nailed what a company does well is you just find kind of a, a problem and, you know, either just add value to that. You've really streamlined the process, I guess, that, you know, for a lot of people was a minor frustration, but you've kind of really added a lot of value into that space. And, you know, and, uh, and I guess the other thing that really struck me is, like I say, just the, how universally applicable it is, you know, and, and, and I guess that's one of the exciting things about how you can have customer over here doing something completely different to a customer over here but both getting a huge amount of value from the platform um and it's not often you know you can say that in in the world of tech that you've got such a a diverse sort of um you know client base so uh so yeah i think that's really exciting um is there anything in particular you feel about airplane in terms of how you differentiate yourself from other you know kind of tools and collaboration platforms that exist in the market what you guys are doing slightly differently yeah. Um, so first, like my non-answer is that I like to say like in the early stages, companies often focus too much on competition. Um, they're typically their own competitors, right? Like your own competition is just like making mistakes and not delivering a product that people actually like. Um, but at the end of the day, like uh, it is still, you, you can't ignore it. And it's important to think about how, um, you know, you're adding your own unique um, impression to the world. And so um there's a few factors here, so a few angles. Uh, one is that some of our competitors are more focused on UI building, and so trying to solve a lot of that problem of building basically rich applications. Um, but we're a lot more opinionated on that. We do have a product for that, but the core of Airplane um, is you know write a little script, deploy it, and then you get a whole form for it. you get a UI for the output, and so. A lot of our cases, we just don't think it's the exact UI is important for our customers. Um, And so we make that a lot faster to get to that final application. The second thing is um, we're 
like we're not low code or no code we're I, I like to joke it's like yes code or easy code um you know it's a bit of uh it's been an interesting bet that certain tools are just better um when you're building in code it means that you know someone in marketing might not be able to do it themselves which is unfortunate but means that the engineer who is ultimately often maintaining and building the tool can do that a lot faster right and so we try to optimize for that, those sorts of distractions where um, you can use version control, you can use GitHub, you can use JavaScript, um, you import a function and, you know, all these common patterns that are obvious when you're coding, like reusing code or importing code from somewhere else or refactoring or using code search tools. Um, you can do all of that now because Airplane is written in code. Um, and I think it scales much better. So, uh, you know, at Benchling, we had very important support tools. Uh, and customer success and implementation tools. And when those tools went down, it was a, it was an outage basically for like a team much larger than engineering. And so you had to really treat database migrations or um, testing of those tools the same as you would test production software. So second bucket there is just really using code, um, leveraging code to build better tooling. Yeah, um, And then there's the third category for like, we sometimes compete with just more general frameworks. Um, and like, oh, like maybe I can just use uh, Django admin for this or, um, you know, whatever uh, vanilla framework that you might just want to use. We love those frameworks and we build on top of some of them ourselves, but um, Airplane operates at a little higher level of abstraction. The design exercise behind Airplane is what if we took infrastructure but applied it to a specific scenario of internal tools to end up with a more opinionated, a better stack? And we like to think the answer is yes there. So you end up, if you don't use Airplane, having to redo a lot of the glue and just um, sometimes build it yourself uh, more so than if you were to just use Airplane. Yeah, cool. Yeah, fantastic. <clears throat> yeah, I like that, especially the, um, I say actually the use, use code part of it and makes makes a lot of sense. And uh, I suppose it's always, it's always nice to receive positive feedback from your clients and um, you know looking at your your kind of client list you've already got a pretty pretty established client base already by the sounds of it but have you got any any real world examples or case studies where airplane has actually you know really significantly kind of changed the game for certain companies and, and kind of improved productivity or, or kind of um, you know, project outcomes yeah for sure um, there's been a few uh a lot, but I'm trying to think of a few that uh, uh, maybe good focus on. Um, it, I will say it has been really broad, like I was saying earlier. Um, and so that's been really fascinating to see. Um, I will say the core of where a lot of companies start is around DevOps and engineering workflows. So some of our earliest customers you know, like Panther um, are using Airplane to automate engineering for engineering kind of tasks. Right, because that that's where you often start. Because we attract a lot of code-heavy uh, users, right? And so uh, the most basic scenario is they they say, "Hey, Josh, I was finally able to get Claude DB access locked down, and not in like a you know you can't uh, touch this kind of way, but more like here's a responsible way of working with your database. Here's Airplane, right? Here's the Notion page on how to use Airplane, how to write a task. Next time you're about to like just uh, run a script." do this instead, here's like the better way to, safer way to do that. And so that uh, you see people using that for uh, automating their operational run books, instant response tools, uh, dashboards showing the deployments. Uh, so that's, 
I think like a great starting point, but then you start realizing, hey, I can actually use this for a bunch of other scenarios as well. So Branch uh, is, for, is another example where they're, uh, I would say like insure tech company, um, and they run an incredibly large size chunk of their backend processes through Airplane. Of course, they have a great engineering team and they're focusing on building the product, but for everything else, right, like support, operations, uh, engineering tools as well, these are all built in tasks and views uh, that are on Airplane, and so Airplane gives them a really robust way of scaling those uh, subsystems. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you, you know, there's uh, this e-commerce company I was working with uh, based out of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, they use Airplane for support operations, and they have this annual holiday sale, similar like a Black Friday. Um, and as you expect, it's usually a really chaotic day. Um, but last year, uh, they, they totally unsolicited just message us saying, by the way, I just want to let you know the airplane fundamentally changed how this day works for us. Um, it used to be super manual, a lot of issues uh, cropping up during the day, a lot of fires. There's probably still just as much chaos, but it's a lot more manageable now because they have this tooling uh, that they've built on airplane to help automate a lot of that away. Um, and so, you know, you see all these various different scenarios across different companies. Um, so, but at, at its core, it's really about software automation, right? And building tooling for humans. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And, and it must be deeply fulfilling when you kind of hear those kind of stories, like I mentioned, but what I love about that is like, so just the, the difference in scenarios there, but the, yeah. the adding value in every instance. And, uh, that's, that's really cool. So, uh, in, in the world that we live in now, and I guess the post post COVID world where, you know, the world is, is more distributed, probably more remote than we've ever been before. Have you, have you built airplane in a particular way to facilitate uh, kind of remote collaboration. Is that something that's uh, yeah. a piece of, of the way the platform has been designed? Yeah, it's interesting. I am, well, Airplane itself is a bit of a distributed company. Uh, I would say it's more of two hubs, SF and New York, uh, plus some other, plus some remote folks, but um, we do face some of these challenges already. Um, I think for all its potential upsides with being remote and distributed, um, the main notable downside is communication is a lot harder. Right? You have to get really good at communicating uh, in writing, in uh, process, some certain processes. Um, you can't just say, hey, like we have this disagreement, let's just chat live over um, coffee or something. And so um, communication is really hard. Uh, you also, learning is hard, uh, where uh, if you're new to the team, you're on a new support prep, um, you have to really have good documentation to get them to understand here's how you, um, here's our process for issuing a refund. Um, And so where Airplane helps is that we help you essentially code your company as a set of APIs, right? Rather than a document saying how to suspend a user or apply a coupon, here's a task that you can click. And here's the code behind that task. If you're an engineer, so you see exactly what it's doing. And so we have this task, for example, to upgrade a team to the enterprise plan. And so it'll handle canceling the Stripe charge and upgrading certain feature flags. And these are all things you could do as a human, but now there's one place to do it. And you know that, you know, next time Josh does this, he's not going to mess up and forget to, uh, you know, disable this part of the trial. Um, And so it's essentially just a form of shared communication, right? Um, By replacing these uh, manual tasks with airplane tasks. And the second thing with airplane is that um, it gives you this visibility into your company. We'd obviously love for you to put everything in your company onto Airplane, um, but the more you do it, the more you can see what others have 
done on Airplane because of how we audit and surface these sorts of things. You know, auditing sounds really boring. It sounds like a you know compliance piece, but it's really more than that. I think it's more of like a, it's like you know on Facebook when you can see a feed of your friends, right? Like uh, airplanes, like you start seeing a feed of what people are doing, and oh, we got a support ticket that came in. Customer wanted to, um, you know, delete this uh, part of their uh, data. Um, you know, oh, I saw that uh, Josh already ran this yesterday. Let me talk to him about that instead. And so you get this visibility into who's doing what with your team. Um, hey, we've run a lot of um, support password reset requests for the last two months. What's going on here? Uh, we have people now like sending airplane to their Datadog instance and doing analytics on it. Um, and so uh, anyways, yeah. So you, you get this visibility that you might otherwise not have um, because things are more remote. Cool. Yeah, that's that's great. And I guess with with the vis I mean the visibility piece, I can imagine being very, very important, especially as I say you ideally want to get in a position where companies obviously using it more and more and becoming more more reliant on it. But with that in mind, what <clears throat> security and confidentiality clearly is a big part to play in um, you know, any company's process, especially kind of automating engineering. But <clears throat> how how does Airplane tackle that problem, you know, from a, from a security point of view? Yeah. Um, I like to think of that in terms of two pieces. First is the security of Airplane, and then second is security of our customers and how that's benefited from using Airplane, right? So, so first of all, like, yeah, Airplane is SOC 2 uh, compliant, right? We uh, do more than what the bare minimum of SOC 2 requires us to do. Uh, it's just very important for us to be secure because trust is a fundamental part of our business. Um, and uh, that's that was true in the benchling days. And so luckily I have the same kind of perspective going into airplane. Um, on the technical side, right? Like you, we've built the platform to be multi-tenant, but uh, with granular permissions from the start. So everything is segmented by which team you're on. Uh, we have fine grain permissions within a team. We have this like policy framework um, around authorization that runs everywhere on all your requests. Uh, these are all standard SaaS best practices, but it's just something we've had since day one. We also offer on-premise hosting. Um, we found that it is definitely a different world in 2023, where you know maybe 10 years ago, um, on-prem was really important to a lot of people. Now I would say it's a lot really important to maybe half as many people. Um, it's still a very uh, important piece, but to to get right though. And so we have this sort of hybrid model there of on-prem hosting where um, we let a customer self-host parts of Airplane. And so the parts that they can self-host, um, it's a bit of a dial. And so we started out with just compute. So you take the agents and it would execute stuff within your network, um, connect to private databases if necessary, and all do that all within your AWS account, for example. Um, but then we would send that data back to Airplane. The second piece that we're launching soon in GA, in beta right now, is self-hosted storage. And so the outputs of the compute um, can now be stored on your premises as well. And you can imagine us over time taking more and more chunking out our airplane infrastructure and saying, now you can self-host this part, now you can self-host this part. And uh, for the, our largest customers, it might be fully self-hosted, right? And so there's like a, there's a range there. And I want to sort of give ground grudgingly to get to that fully self-hosted. Because I do think the, the other thing to balance this whole thing against is by only self-hosting the parts that you need to self-host, the customer gets a much better experience, right? You let airplane manage security of the main 
the core central pieces, the control plane of the system, et cetera. And you only have to deal with, uh, you know, certain parts of it. It's a lot lower maintenance. It's a lot less effort. And I think at the end of the day, security is in fact, just as good or better when the team is dedicated to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the last piece here is the security of our customers. And that's also really important where airplane is sort of come for the come for the quick tasks, but stay for the like security and compliance posture, right? Like it's different people we're talking to how they work, but the the sale to the the CTO or or the CISO is different than selling to an engineer. Uh, for the CTO and CISO, it's this is how you get great visibility into what's actually happening within your org, right? Before this, your engineers were connecting to product anyways. You just didn't know about it. And now you have a single place and you can say, okay, like this should be read only, or if it's going to make a change, require two engineers to approve. And if something did happen, you have an audit trail now, which you often are missing and you should have for SOC 2 compliance. Um, and so these are all things that you just really get for free just by using airplane. And so airplane as a security tool is also really powerful. And I think we'll start seeing more and more of that as we go more, um, uh, you know, up market into the enterprise. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And, uh, yeah, really, really a thorough answer there to that, to that question. So, yeah, thanks for that. Important. Yeah. yeah, it is important. <clears throat> Absolutely. And it feels like just on the whole, you know, it's a really well, well considered approach to the, to the whole platform. So, uh, no wonder you guys are, are smashing it and, and going from strength to strength. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to be very excited to see where, where airplane, uh, goes from here. Cause it feels like the uh, possibilities are almost limitless, but, um, what I'd like to do is, is, you, know, you mentioned a couple of times you've taken a bit of the learnings from your time at Benchling and you know sort of built built on that with um, with Airplane. So it'd be great to understand a little bit more about um, your approach as a CTO, um, I suppose. You know, yeah. going specifically within Benchling, being was it the first hire into the business, and um, you know sort of scaling that 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 business kind of 250, 300 people plus. Yeah. Um, you know, talk talk us through. There's a lot of CTOs out there that would you know be very keen to hear how they achieve that kind of scale and, and are there any sort of approaches, methodologies, you know, consistencies that you take to a situation to to scale tech teams, I suppose. Talk, talk us through a little bit about your approach um, to scaling as a CTO. I think first I'll say the, the title CTO is very varied and you sort of have to think uh, to yourself, like what kind of CTO are you, right? Um, there's the CTO where you're basically a co-founder. You're just using that to indicate that you're the more technical focused co-founder. Um, there's a CTO where you're really a VP of engineering or management your main job. There's a CTO where you're, you're the head product person, uh, very technical kind of product. Um, there's a CTO where you're an architect, where maybe the product is not as technical, but the, the, sorry, the output is not as technical, but how you build there is very technical. Uh, and then there's the place where you're the main salesperson. You're taking the stage at reInvent and trying to really like get people to use your product. Um, so, and then obviously people are a combination of all of those, right? And so my advice really, you know, only applies to a certain subset of that. Um, uh, and so that's really the first thing to think about, like, what is your actual role here? Like, what are you good at? What are you focused on? Yeah. Um, in terms of my experience, um, so eventually it was a lot more on the like, Technical infrastructure piece, architecture, working with customers, um, and uh, so helping our uh, team scale through technology. And then at Airplane, it's been a lot more focused 
Um, well, ultimately, as a co-founder, my job is to do everything that isn't um, being done and try to scale that us over time. Um, and in, in the early days, right, it, it was being managing the whole team. I do have a, um, uh, we have a new head of engineering join us uh, early this year, and he's been fantastic and really oper operationalizing more of the engineering team himself. Um, and so anyway, long way answer to say like it varies and it really d d depends. The main theme I've noticed is just for engineering specifically, trying to balance autonomy with um, the prescriptive nature that I think my personality lends to, right? Like getting this business, I have strong opinions on the product I want to build, um, certain aspects, how I want to build it, um, certain like things, infrastructure investments that we need to make. Um, and so like, you know, I like think that's part of my value add as founder, right? Like understanding that and having a vision for where we're going to get there. You need to balance that though with also the fact that we have, you know, a dozen or so engineers working with me and designers and um, eventually that was even larger. And so balancing that with autonomy was really, is really important. And I think that's always been the biggest challenge in figuring out the right dial at the right stage, right? Early on, you sort of want everyone to be working really closely together and to be involved in like a lot of the major decisions. Um, but at this stage of airplane, I need every individual engineer, all the individual teams to be highly autonomous and to make good decisions without me having to look at it, right? Or put differently, they don't want me micromanaging them either. And so how do you do that? Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a very hard challenge. Um, it's easier said than done, but the way I think about it is uh, you need culture really to establish the like core thing of making sure everyone thinks about certain problems in the same approach, right? Like, is this ready? And I don't mean like you have to do everything the same way exactly. Like um, you want diversity in like approach, but I think uh, you want consistency in a quality bar or in coding style or in um, just how much we care about the customer experience, right? Um, versus just focusing on hard technical challenges. And so those are things that you really just as a leader have to live and just be very, you know, hopefully it should be very obvious to our teams what Josh cares about. And as you work with me and then you ask work with people who work with me, you start understanding that and everyone starts forming the same opinions on, okay, this isn't good enough to ship. Well, we need to like do another iteration on this, or, you know, this is taking way too long. Like we need to get this out there fast. And these are all things that I will say in working with people and, you sort of just, anyways, you build culture um, by doing, by really acting through it. And I think that's how you really scale. Because then at some point you have these teams and you say, hey, you know, Justin, you're the tech lead of this team. Just go figure out, here's the pro main problems I, I need you to solve. Go figure out how to do it. And you trust that they can do it and that they're going to do it in the same cultural alignment that the rest of the teams are thinking about. Um, and that's when I think things start really building momentum and working, um, because then they run way faster than I can keep up with. And that's, you know, intentional. And then I can focus on only certain aspects of the business at a given point in time. Brilliant. No, I think that's a, a really, again, really thorough and, and great answer. And yeah, I totally agree with you. Obviously with the world of CTA, it's a very subjective title. It means very different things in different companies, as, as you know, especially in a startup company can mean wearing many hats simultaneously. But I really like the point you make about 
yeah actually it's it's sort of looking objectively outside of yourself sometimes and, and thinking actually what kind of cto do i want to be and uh you know where are my strengths and and kind of where am i best because certainly in a in a you know and that that is often when i speak to ctos that are in that earlier stage business because they are wearing so many hats they really struggle with that scaling piece because they're constantly running around putting out fires and getting involved with anything from you know writing codes to you know infrastructure issues and then obviously client facing piece and that kind of thing so it's, it's just actually knowing where you know, where are my strengths best served and where do i need to bring people in that can sort of plug those gaps for me and, and i totally agree with your point about culture as well you know i think to to truly scale a business it, it has to scale past one person's input and um you know you, you need that unity and and clarity over approach to solve problems uh absolutely agree with it, it sort of transcends very similarly into recruitment as well actually um you know i'm sure it's the same of every every business out there really but um no great great question great point and um one of the things i was quite keen to to understand i suppose you know the, the internal tooling world with with airplane and and just sort of where the world of software engineering is going in in general at the moment with the rise of you know uh, you know call it ai but let's say large language models you know like yeah. chat gpt and all that kind of thing and how that's impacting software engineering in, in, in a big way um really interested to get your take on this as a clearly a very technical you know hands-on cto in, in the past but how do you feel the world of ai you know in a loose term uh yeah. intersecting with the world of software engineering and, and sort of what do you feel that the future holds there yeah i will say it's definitely been a roller coaster um uh it's uh i think the big question for me is just how fast ai grows from here um because where the trajectory ultimately i think determines a lot of things um you know when gpt2 gpt2 came out uh it, it was very different than gpt4 right it was um and so the question is what does gpt i don't know seven look like right if they keep that sort of versioning scheme um and so i, I think i like to think of this when i'm talking to the team as well i i break this down to like the bear case and the bull case um, the bear case is still really interesting. Um, it's not like a disappointment at all, but like, uh, maybe I'll start with saying like GPT four today is really good. Um, you know, uh, it's one of the few areas that's been demonstrably good at is coding, right? It's probably also really impactful in other areas, medicine, law. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But where I can see from my own with my own eyes is mm. GitHub Copilot or having ChatGPT open in a window and asking it to help me debug things. Yeah. Um, is it going to be able to write airplane for me? Um, maybe not. Our engineers on team are already asking. We have Claude, which is Anthropic's model as a Slack bot. Are they already asking Claude for help through Slack? Yes. So, you know, like it's already um, the bear case is that this is the best we have and turns out um, you know, the transformer architecture doesn't really keep scaling and we just can't figure out the next architecture. Um, we're running out of data to like train on. And really this is the best we got. It's like a very, you know, 25th percentile software engineer who makes a lot of mistakes. Um, and, but like, you know, it's a lot cheaper than hiring a software engineer. And so I think in that world where GitHub Copilot is sort of the best we have, it's still hugely impactful, right? Like maybe people aren't laying off engineers uh, in mass at that point, but engineers, I think are 20%, 50% more effective. Um, and you, you write a little function and AI just fills it in right today. Like 
I had to like do this like batch do duping logic when I was rendering a component and I just I wrote the function and I just hit tab like 30 times and just filled it in for me. Right. Um, and so that's today. Right. And I think that um, it turns out most software engineering jobs, as much as we like to think like we have like these funny interview questions and all these algorithms, right. Most of the job is writing boilerplate code. Um, a software engineer is still very valuable because they can solve that like part is 10, 20% when it does come up. Um, but a lot of it is boilerplate. And I think to even today's AI can take a chunk of that. And so I think that's the bare case, right? I'm obviously very convinced at the bare minimum impact that I can have. The bull case, I think it gets really scared, right? With the optimistic, or depending on your view, maybe an optimistic <laughs> case, the, the like high trajectory growth case is that it lets, reaches a level of intelligence that rivals like the median engineer. It doesn't even have to be the best engineer, right? The average engineer. So imagine like the engineers you've worked with um, or that you know, take the middle one of them. Imagine that they now, if they didn't already, receive feedback very well, that they're working 24 seven, you know, you have a GPU and they'll just keep working. And then they've, had help, they've helped you, I don't know, hire a dozen of their own friends, right? So now you have 12 of those people just working 24 seven with you. Um, and maybe there's some interface to them, right? Maybe you have Jira and you create a ticket, says like implement the like landing page and you go to sleep and you wake up and it's done. Like that I think is very plausible already. And like going past that, right? It's like, okay, there's AGI, there's like, will it then write an AI that will like kill us all? I don't know. But like, if you just look at the very boring case of like this automation of a software engineer, I I just can't imagine the software engineering roles could be the same. I don't know what it's going to look like, right? I feel like we're not used to having our own jobs challenged in this. Like everyone's like, oh, I want to replace myself. But like, how much do you actually want to replace yourself? And I think uh, software engineers can be very different in this case, right? Maybe everyone's an architect, but how many software architects do you really need on a team? And like, who does what parts of the stack? Um, I think a lot of that's going to end up being challenged if we do reach this case. Um, we might not. But I do think that's like a real possibility now. And so in that world, right, how does airplane fit in? How, how does software engineering fit in? It's very hard to say. I think that for us, like there's a chance it just surpasses, um, you know, I need a table. Okay, just prints out a table for you. And like, okay, I need that to be a lot more performant. I need that to hook it up with a serverless platform and it maybe can do that. Our best case is that it really can't do that last part. And so airplane is just giving this AI all the primitives it needs to assemble software rapidly, right? Take um, an AI, ask it to, for a business use case, I just need to, um, I need a quick tool to see uh, fraudulent signups. And then say, okay, like, let me break this down. I need to build like four airplane tasks, connect that to like an airplane view, add in this permissioning, this notification. Does this look good? You say ship it. And it's like 10 minutes and you have like a whole airplane tool. So I'm really hoping that that's the outcome, obviously. Um, but you know, I'm not, uh, I'm sort of a passenger here as much as you are. Yeah, absolutely. No, I like, I like the, the comparison there, the base, the base versus the ball, but it's, uh, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, I always have this conversation about chat GPT about, you know, how long humans have been on the planet. And, and if you look at where we are now in, in literally the last few years of, I know large language models have been around for a long time, but I guess chat GPT is the first time it's been really kind of universally adopted isn't it worldwide and sort of now on everybody's radar and consciousness um that really has happened in kind of the blink of an eye and um 
when you talk about the bold case scenario, like you said, it it really doesn't take too much of a stretch of imagination to kind of feel that is plausible um, and actually how long it could be until we get into that situation. But um, but I, I am a firm believer that, you know, exactly the same way that you said that, you know, w- will it ever be able to build airplane? Probably not because it probably, I think we're still so far away from a level of sentient intelligence and kind of an AGI that understands context to the degree that, that it understands there's a problem there to be solved. I still feel that is quite a way away and therefore human input is always going to be be required you know it's not that that you know um chat gpt and ai is going to replace humans but it's 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 the new system and we need to work out how we get the best the best out of it and um you know that's so so i don't know whether to be uh you know kind of depressed or optimistic for the future but um but all i know is it's very interesting isn't it and uh, we'll see where we go from here because I'll point out like that's the same thing we said for GPT too, right? And we were just like, oh, it's like I'm talking to Einstein and or maybe maybe talk like Steve Jobs and oh, this is cute. Like your place is like, I don't know if you ever did like the AIM chatbots like 20, yeah, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I was like, great, we're at that stage. Um, but, you know, um, I don't believe it'll actually be like able to do more complex thoughts or can't solve this kind of puzzle. And then GPT-4 came out. So I do think it is like a trajectory case, right? Is this like a logistics curve or is it an exponential curve? Um, and so, uh, you know, we will see. <laughs> we will see indeed. Absolutely. Let's do another podcast in a year's time and uh, and see see where we are. <laughs> I might be replaced by, by ChatGPT. Yeah, you and I are just two AIs. <laughs> I got it at that point. Cool, cool. Well, um, I guess I'd like to, to sort of close by asking, you know, I, I think, you know, clearly incredibly competent guy josh and uh, can see why you've been very successful as a as a technology leader um but i'm sure there have been uh highs and lows and i'm sure there's been a lot of challenges along the way and um, in in your sort of tech journey so w- what would you say has been one of your greatest challenges uh, that you faced as a technology leader and and yeah. you know, how did you overcome it i think uh, my first like really non-answer is like the hardest challenge is that there's a ton of small challenges, right? I would love it was like, oh, the biggest challenge was we had to really make perf work at this thing. And we did that and then the business was solved, right? It turns out that like, it was like a hundred different small things, right? Oh, I need to like ramp up recruiting. Okay, we have this like funnel here or like uh, we had to do multi-tenancy and, uh, you know, at one point do we evolve the platform to support this kind of new object and so like both like technical product customer facing like at Benchling, it was like four years of a grind really finding product market fit and then turns out like at the end of the day like the click was first of all we had to build like a lot of product but second of all really learn how to sell enterprise right so these are all like it's like the main challenge was that it's just training and it's a lot of work and you started had to just keep going for years at a time before you see like the right results now more specifically i will say like as from a technology side, the most interesting theme that I've seen um, more at Benchling uh, was just building enterprise software and how, let's call it like infrastructure or cloud deployments really worked when uh, selling to biotech and farm. So I mean by that, it's like when we started, uh, we were a bunch of 20 year olds. I think the average age was under 21. We were trying to convince like a biotech company to put its sensitive IP on this platform. And so you sort of had to like, do a lot of things to make that happen, right? We put them in their own VPC. We had their own encrypted database that we managed for them and uh, their own instance of benchling. 
And, and so by the time, you know, 2018 comes around, you had like 80 different deployments of Benchling, you had the multi-tenant version, you had an academic version. And so a lot of challenges like scaling and making that work, um, a lot of automation, a lot of architecture to like make that happen. But then as we evolved, it was then moving back to multi-tenancy, back to like putting a lot of our customers on the same instance, but making that still really secure. Um, but then on the like super enterprise end, it was moving from uh, deploying to our customer's ADAPS account to, I think, and this is past my time, finally convincing them to move back into um, an airplane, uh, sorry, eventually hosted infrastructure account. So really like we, I saw this like wild arc of like initial customers being like really sell a single tenant or a lot of customers weren't willing to buy Benchling because they wanted like deployment into their own data centers, right? This was like even before a lot of pharma was adopting AWS. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we have this data center in, uh, you know, Oregon. Do you mind? Can you support like VMware, vSphere or whatever? And we would say, no, we do cloud, right? And um, uh, that was a crazy trend because at first it was like, okay, well, we don't do cloud yet. And then by like 2017, 2018, it's like, okay, like, what is this cloud thing? Like, can you help us get into that? Um, and so that was basically a lot, a lot of small transition points, but a really interesting technical challenge in just evolving bacheling over the years. And I'm sure the bacheling team has even more to do today, but um, seeing how biotech and pharma eventually adopted cloud, even multi-tenancy um, was definitely a very fortuitous trend for bacheling, uh, I will say, but also a very interesting technical challenge for us to evolve through. Cool. Yeah, lovely. Very, very nice. Uh pragmatic answer there and, and great that you can kind of single out a particular uh technical challenge but uh, but i also totally agree with you i think in in all walks of life you know it's very rarely defined by one singular challenge and is you know making making the right decisions on a, a daily basis against lots of little small issues small struggles small small challenges that that ultimately yeah. amount to success or failure isn't it and so uh, yeah couldn't, couldn't agree with you more on that front um Awesome. Well, Josh, look, I really, really enjoyed the chat today. I think it's been a fantastic episode and, and I really thank you for, for coming on and uh, telling us more about the uh, exciting stuff going on at Airplane and, and sharing a bit of your uh, your, your, your wisdom around um, uh, you know building and scaling teams. Um, I like to end every podcast um, with the same question, which is um, if there is one piece of advice that has stuck with you throughout your career, uh, I'm, I'm, you're probably going to tell me now. There's lots of little pieces of advice. Maybe, uh -huh. If you think of one, one piece of advice that um, you know you'd pass on to your fellow humankind, um, what, what would yeah. that be for you? No, I actually do have a singular one here. I think it's um, uh, basically this regret minimization framework advice that um, one benchling founder told me when I was deciding if I want to join benchling. But I think Jeff Bezos originally said it. Um, but essentially, like. At the end of the day, a lot of life decisions have a lot of factors surrounding them. Like if you're trying to choose which company to join, if you're choosing to do a startup or a large company, um, you can't just write down a pro and con list and count things up. You have to like, um, it, it's not an easy decision. Um, and I think the simplest fact thing that I found that actually solves it is just to think about if I didn't do this, would I regret it in say 10 years, right? And so um, you know, for benchling or something like if I didn't do this, I would probably go to some large tech company at the time and just have a lot of fun building technical stuff, but I'd probably regret not giving a shot 
Um, if I did give the shot, take a shot, right? Maybe bacheling doesn't work out in a few years we fold and I could then go join whatever large tech company I would have joined. And so, um, but I would have known that I would have given it my uh, best shot. Uh, we have learned a lot. I would have, you know, basically not regretted uh, having made that decision. And so that I think summarizes a lot of my thinking um, when there's a lot of unknowns, it's like, would I regret not doing this or not? Um, and so uh, it's not the most objective framework. It's not very well thought out, but I think, you know, it's really the best you can do in certain cases. Yeah, I like that. I think when, when you talk about regret, it kind of hits uh, hits at an emotional level, doesn't it? And I think that's what people can can relate to when you're you're forecasting in the future, you know, am I, am I going to regret this or not? Um, yeah, it kind of cuts to the cuts to the emotion straight away, doesn't it? And usually gives yeah. you the answer pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. it's pr you probably shouldn't use that for deciding like, you know, what architecture should I use for uh, this, you know, SaaS that I'm building. Uh, so please, I wouldn't say don't do that. But yeah, for large slide decisions, just I think that's the only way you can do it. Cool. Like it, like it a lot. Brilliant. Well, uh, yeah, I guess all that remains to, uh, to do is say, Thanks again for coming on, being such a fantastic guest. Really enjoyed the chat. And uh, yeah, I'll absolutely be keeping my eyes uh, and ears open for uh, seeing how Airplane does and watching it go from uh, from success to success as, uh, as you move forward. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye for now. Take care.